and we're back with part two of Sue's story. Have you listened to part one? Sue Badu was born in London in 1945. Part one explored her post-war childhood with rations and rubble, a love of languages and failure in math, and we found out she's not so average after all. In this episode, we follow her as she moves across the channel for love and life. She's been, quote, abroad for 50 years, two-thirds of her life in a country she was not born in. Sue is not an expat. She's not an immigrant. She's not a local. Sue is a lifer. What is that like? To be married and have kids and manage friendships and work all in a place you call home, but was not a part of your upbringing. From table manners to politics, let's go ahead and start the conversation. I'm Megan Kitchen, and this is Balancing Cultures. So you move abroad. The question I want to know, because this is kind of where I'm at, is when did it go from I've moved abroad to this is my life, this is my home? I don't know. I think probably because because I got married, and that was a commitment that we both took seriously. So it, the day, I guess the day I was married, I thought, well, this is my home. This is now. This is me. You know, this is where we are, and this is how we move forward. I think it must have been at that point. So you had no intention of moving back to the UK at any time. No, no, no. Um, it wouldn't have made sense. Vincent's job meant that he was very tied to his own art school. And also, I was I was extremely fortunate in my parents-in-law. They absolutely adored me, and they, they were so kind to me. And I felt really welcomed. And I always thought that if I if I took Vincent away, they they'd die of, of sorrow, you know. <laughs> so, and he's got he's got a huge family, and you know the, we had a recent lunch for somebody's 80th birthday and just close family was 58 of us so that but that shows the other side right so you had the very freeing experience that you could move your husband then had the experience of if he moves away it might be the death of his mother yeah well i I exaggerate slightly because he he of all his siblings he's the only one to leave their hometown there are two kinds of people in the world. You've got the somewhere people and the anywhere people. I can't remember whose theory it is, but they are definitely somewhere people. I'm a, I could have been an anywhere person. The fact that I ended up in one place is only circumstances, but you know, I could have gone elsewhere. But they're very, very, very rooted. Uh, you, you have to, you have to realize that Belgium is the doormat of Europe, that everybody's tramped through, invaded us wave after wave from the north, from the east, from the west, from the south. And they really have a very strong sense of territory and they hang on to their homes and their families. They do everything as a family, everything as a family. And the fact that Vincent, the only one of the six to actually move out of the city, all of 30 miles to the capital, ooh, you know, is really, is really quite something. I mean, they're terribly proud of him, but they meet up all the time. We, we meet up occasionally, not now because of COVID, but three or four times a year and we invite each other and everything's absolutely fine. But he is the outlier in the family. Even before he met me, I mean, he was the only one who wanted to study something like art, and he's the only one who studied here rather than in their own town. Uh, so he, you know, the, the writing was on the wall already that he would he would move away and do something different. He is markedly different from the others. It's interesting to hear you describe the Belgian mindset and what has influenced that, because my brother has married a half Belgian woman. 
think of my sister-in-law and her mother and her grandmother and their connection. They talk to each other almost every day. I know. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I compare that to my relationship with my mother, which, I, you know, it hasn't been golden sunshine and rainbows all our life, mm-hmm. but I don't think I've ever spoken to her every day. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. No, it's completely different. And they automatically think of doing things together. Mm. It's all fine, but I couldn't live that life and I couldn't live on, on top of them like they live on top of each other. I really couldn't do it. And nobody expects me to, so that's absolutely fine. But it's a completely different different way of uh, conceiving of the individual and the group. It's completely different. That's the biggest cultural difference for me. That really really is it. Is that a cultural difference between UK and Belgium, or do you think it's also down to your family's particular values? Well, both, I think. But really, um, I mean, Brits are really not anything, much more friends-minded rather than family-minded. I mean, of course, they adore their families, but they, they don't all do the same thing at the same time in the same place all the time. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the difference. They, they gather together to have fun, but they don't, they, don't go to sh- they don't go shopping together at the same time. They don't, you know, these things that are, it, well, it's, it comes of uh, having no trust in authority and always needing to do things with the people you know. Mm-hmm. And that's goes all the way up to politics. They just don't trust the politicians that they that they don't know. They will elect corrupt local politicians over and over again, rather than trust somebody who's higher up that they don't know. It's very important to know people. Historically, authority meant random unfairness to because they didn't know you. So you you have to make sure that you've got you've got your protection. So what I say to you really rings a bell. You really recognize that as well. Oh, yeah, because it's such a stark contrast to my experience with my family and my brother, of course, having the same experience with our family. We were very independent. Even my parents moved away from their homes right away. We moved, you know, all around the U.S. to the opposite side of the country. Not having a direct connection to grandparents never really... Like, I didn't think that was strange that we didn't see our grandparents often or talk to them often. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's funny to say that because I like this um, warmth, this family warmth. I just don't like this, this stifling nature of it. But I was very, when the children, I have two children, and when they were growing up, I loved that they loved their grandparents so much. Mm. And I loved that the grandparents loved them so much. And in fact, this we have two granddaughters. And um, I'm, I'm just, I'm actually, I'm very flattered that they, both girls are so attached to us and so affectionate towards us. I, I find that wonderful because, you know, it's not because it's in Belgium that everybody is nice to their grandparents. I've seen them being, you know, indifferent or rude or, or just, you know, never caring about them. And, and they, they're always in touch. I mean, we haven't seen each other since October, but normally we probably have a meal together once in a, a week. Um, and, you know, we, we, we chat on the phone and we email and we can send messages and so on. And they really are quite, quite close to us. You moved, when was it? In 1969. No, 1969. Mm-hmm. So 1969. And since then, you, you've been married, you've had your children, you built a career, you then... Your grandchildren moved back to the country and you now have a very healthy relationship with them. Yes, yes. So from my experience, I am about to hit 13 years right, here in Germany. And I know that 
there's a very good chance I'm here long term. So I may be just like you and stay in one country for a very, very long time that is not my own. Yes. But I still feel like a foreigner. And I and I don't think I'm ever gonna shake that feeling. How do you how do you feel about that? You know, they start with the title expat, for example. Yeah. And then I feel like expat doesn't quite suit me anymore, but I'm not a local. Am I an immigrant? I don't know. How do you feel? I, I'm not sure. Um, when I came here, nobody mentioned it. You were just here. You know, you weren't, you weren't from here, but you were here. But I think, I don't think whatever I say will have it, make any difference to you because the huge difference is that you're not married to a German. That's also true. Foreign. And I think that makes an enormous difference. Well, what was it for you then being married to a local? Mm-hmm. Did you, have you ever reached the point where you feel like a local completely? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even think about it. I mean, also, remember, I was bilingual before I arrived. So there was, yeah. you know, it was easy to fit in in those circumstances. It really was. You know, you marry one of them, you speak the language, you get integrated very quickly. Uh, but the thing, the thing I like about being um, different, whatever label we end up with, is that you are free to reject the things you don't like. And you are free to adopt whatever you like. Also, uh, another another thing in parenthesis is that uh, one huge difference between Belgium and the UK is that it's a small country with minute influence and no concept of its own grandeur, present or past. The, they don't even have a recognisable national identity. Most of them don't even know the words of their national anthem. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is no there is no sense of past glories or there's really no national identity. They ident that's a kind of vague idea. When the football team wins, suddenly everybody wants to be Belgian. But all, <laughs> all the rest of the time they it's quite tribal. It's really quite tribal. I mean it's so splintered and so fractured and so fractious that you know, we, well, you must have. I mean, it's twice now we've gone five hundred days without a government because they can't agree to to, to govern together. They they couldn't make up a coalition properly. They fight and bicker all the time, both communities. And if we didn't, if we weren't hosts to NATO and the European Union, um, I've, I think the country would have fallen apart a long time ago. Um, but every now and then, there's this move to split the country, and then you start seeing Belgian flags hanging on people's balconies because they don't like the idea. They like the idea of a united Belgium, and economically it's better. But um, that, no, patriotism is not a word you hear because everybody identifies with something different, and it's it's a part of the country that they identify with. I mean, not, not a geographical part, but certain elements that they are proud to own and others that they absolutely deplore. But it's it's interesting. Are, are there a lot of international people there? Oh, yes, thousands. Masses. I think we've probably got more than 45% of People in Brussels are international anyway. They're not native Belgians. Yeah, masses because because it's a crossroads. It's got good connections. The workforce is quite good, quite well trained, and, and multilingual usually. Uh, masses of multinationals are are here. That's why um, the international schools started here so early, immediately after the war. I mean, the school I work at was founded in 1951. Oh wow! So many multinational families who needed needed schooling. Um, and it's always been like it started with with um, uh, what was it the Marshall Plan after the war and uh, you know when and then we were colonized by 
corporate America. And this was a very good place to have your to have your headquarters because it's multilingual, it's central, it's a crossroads, and you can get to all the other countries easily. I mean, in two hours we can be in London, in Paris, in in Bonn, in in Luxembourg, in Holland. We're so central. Well, I've got one more selfish question that branches off of that. Yes, yes. Now, you worked at an international school, and I work in the international sector as well. And as you mentioned, my husband's not German, so we're both international people. Yes. I'd love to know how you handled friendships along the way. Since you were working in a community where there were a lot of people who were coming for temporary contracts, and you were a foreign person, I'm putting quotes on that, but you were a local. And that's the position I feel I'm in, where I'm I'm American, I will never stop being American, Mm -hmm. but I'm quite local Mm -hmm. to Germany. I feel personally it influences how I'm making friendships with people who are here temporarily. How did you feel about that along the way? Um, yeah, well, it was just a fact of life. It didn't really, it didn't really bother me. I should say that uh, for the first ten years here, I was not teaching. I was working in management consulting, uh, helping people with their English and writing reports and interviewing candidates for jobs and so forth. I didn't like it, but once I, I, I had my first first child, uh, actually on our first wedding anniversary. So, I, I was very happy that they let me come back part time because part-time jobs for women in the early 70s were very hard to come by. So I stuck with it so that I could have a job but be with with my son as much as I could. Otherwise, it would have been a full-time job or nothing at all. And we just, Belgian teachers are terribly badly paid. So I really did need to keep working. Um, But after a while, I really got fed up with it. And then that's when I moved into teaching. And I I taught taught at the European School, children of the officials of the European institutions. Uh, And I also worked at the European Commission. You know, you see on the news, you know, the Berlin Monde, teaching the parents of the kids that I was teaching in the school. And after a couple of years of running myself ragged between all three places, I decided to go with the international school because it was more, you could teach in a more creative way. It was less well paid, but it was much more gratifying professionally. And, and that was in 1986. So I did have 10 years out of teaching. And I come back to that because of the friendship thing. Most of the people I was working with in management consulting, they were there was a mixture of Belgians and, and non-Belgians. But they were lifers as well. We call them lifers when they're here forever. You know. Maybe that's what I should call myself. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're a Munich lifer. Absolutely. There we go. Yeah. Um, and so that, and I'm still friends with uh, with three of those people, and that was not a problem at all. Um, and then, um, yeah, it's true. You sort of you are cast as an expert in everything if you've lived here for a long time, and people come to you, especially the older you get. Yeah, they cast you as, you know, they used to call me Susanica Britannica because I could always answer questions about things like buses. <laughs> and they'd come from the supermarket with something weird and say, what do I do with this? How do I cook it? And I would tell them. Um, but that was fine. You know, that was that was all part of the give and take. And uh, it's it's I think it's a very supportive environment anyway in inter- internationals. I've always enjoyed all the relationships I had on campus, be they long-term or short-term, and these things find their own level, don't you think? They sort of, either they go on when the person leaves or, or they don't, and things like Facebook bring people back to the surface that you hadn't seen for maybe 25 years, and it's as if uh, if you'd never been apart. You know, it's, it's great. So I don't see it as a, I don't feel compromised with any of the friendships. I don't feel um, that I... You know, I don't feel uncomfortable about having had to say goodbye to somebody. I don't feel that I 
change the way I behave towards somebody because they were going to leave or because they were not going to leave. It's just a fact of life, you know. Yeah. I don't. I never saw that as a problem. I think it's a fact of life for people in our lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people would find that part of being in an international setting very difficult, that you say goodbye a lot. Yes, yes, yeah. I think it depends at what age it begins, because that's always worried me about our students. I, I would notice sometimes that they would be very wary of getting involved with someone because they know how painful it can be. Mm-hmm. And they they would kind of hold back um, and hold their emotions in check. I, I often used to notice that with students, and it, it was quite often the conversation I provoked so that we could you know get get it out in the open. Um, but you know we're grown ups; we're supposed to cope with these things. You know, when, if 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 you've got so many friends anyway, if you're lucky that you know, and it's these days you can you can see everybody every day for heaven's sake. It's it's not at all the same thing. They're not lost forever, you know. But there's another thing, uh, uh, nothing to do with balancing cultures. This is something that happened, um, what, 20, 21 years ago now. And I once recounted this at, uh, at school to people who were mothers. And they, they all said, I hope my, my child says something like this to me. Because, well, first of all, when I got Matthew home, I, I had Dr. Spock. That was what we read at the time. And it seemed to make sense. And then every now and again, I think, well, no, I don't agree with that, so I do it my way. And with Matthew, it worked. Everything worked beautifully. He was a, the happiest baby. He was an easy baby. He was very thin. He ate all the time. He was very skinny, so that was, you know, that was a bit of a worry. But he was never oppositional. He was always positive. He was. He picked things up easily. He was sweet-tempered. He was a good little friend. He was. He was a lovely little boy. And I thought. All my all my theories are proving to be right. I'm doing a good job here. And then his sister arrived. <laughs> well, I would have been so so arrogant and cocky if I hadn't had to cope with her because I would have thought it was because of me that it was all working. It's not. It's not. They come pre-programmed. They have their own biochemistry, and all you can do is tinker around the edges. Honestly, that's all you can do. Because when Sophie Claire was born, she was she, she was well, first of all she was born breech, so she came she came in upside down. <laughs> she kicked her way out quite literally. I was I wasn't even in the right place when it happened. And um, anyway, it was panic stations, but she was absolutely fine. But when she was born, she screamed for two hours. She screamed and she thrashed around and she wore all the skin off her elbows and knees by thrashing around under the sheet. And all the nurses said, "Oh dear, you're you know this." <laughs> <laughs> a handful here and she was so just so rebellious all the time on everything she would argue about everything uh, at the same time being very very sweet natured and very affectionate but you know really very very explosive very easily and this went on for a long time until finally you know she she moved out and she had management in switzerland and it was all absolutely fine and now she's an extremely accomplished young woman who works for the international office of migration which is an extremely useful job these days as you can imagine yeah but when she'd had her first child she was living in switzerland and we we tried to go down there right through all the holidays to be with them and she'd left one job because she wasn't sure how long she wanted to be on maternity leave and she said one day she was getting really a bit bored. The baby was about five or six months and she was starting to think about looking for another job. She said, oh, I wish I could do what you did, Mama, and just stay at home with us and just be there for us. 
but it'll drive me mad. I know I've got to get out of the house, but I do wish I could have. I do wish I was just more like you and could stay at home and be happy just bringing us up and just being a mum. And I said, I beg your pardon. She hadn't noticed that I was out of the house most of the time. She, and I said, but darling, I worked. I never. I had. I had three months maternity leave, and that's all. I never had a sabbatical. I was. I worked all the time. At the time. At that time, I was working in management consulting. I didn't have school holidays. I had three weeks holiday a year. I was working all the time. And she said. But you were there all the time. You were you were always there. And I had birthday parties and 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 F, I never noticed you were working. So so I tell you that because I noticed that when I told it to other young mothers at school, they were so relieved because you know you beat yourself up that you're not in the house enough and you're not paying them enough attention. That's not necessarily their perception at all. So and I think that extends to other things too. Um, but in terms of oh, this is very funny you wrote about parenting and I'd written to you about child rearing that's a generational vocabulary thing that's very interesting I mean there's a whole PhD in there somewhere but um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true but um, I think that it's balancing the cultures in bringing up the children that has been hardest for me mm. we had more arguments about correct table manners than anything else while the children were growing up I wanted them to, to eat like English people so that my mother wouldn't be horrified when I took them home um, to her and um, nobody else cared that was the thing <laughs> so, but, but it's more serious somehow it's more serious if you do think that the codes in Britain are so complicated even now and I didn't want them to be embarrassed by doing something that they didn't know they weren't supposed to be doing basically mm. you know and also I think as a woman there are things you have a red line you know there are things you will not tolerate certain things have to be inculcated it's part of your role it's part of your duty and if you fail to do, like being clean or, you know, or brushing your teeth or something, if you fail to do that, you know, you really feel you, you've, you've been derelict in your duty, as it were. I was thinking about that, that really bicultural table manners are, that's a balancing act, if ever there was one, where it's really quite difficult. It's interesting the way you put it, that you you want your children to act a particular way. And if they don't, if they don't adhere to the manners that you hope to have them value that yeah. you do feel you didn't use this word but I'm going to use it you feel like you've failed yeah your dereliction of duty absolutely that's completely true and and sometimes it even feels like they're you know when they're young you think you're doing that on purpose this is a slap in the face yeah 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 you know it's interesting to hear you say that that was a part of your balancing that your husband or that side of the family didn't value these things the way the British side valued them. Were there other things along the way that you had to balance? We could even say, you know, compromise or negotiate. <laughs> you know, things happen that you don't like, but you've got to do a kind of cost benefit analysis or you make a fuss, you know. You know what I mean? Uh, well, I do. I do. I, I usually make the fuss. <laughs> Yeah, that's because you're American, you see. You're, you're brought up to believe you're allowed to make a fuss. We are not, well, not, they are now, but they certainly weren't in my generation. No, no. Fusses are not welcome. No, no, not, not welcome at all. That is a cultural difference. And my husband and I, this is somewhere, I wouldn't say we have to, we have disagreements about it. We have very different ways of expressing ourselves and our opinions, meaning I do it all the time and he does it none of the time. Yeah. And it's just, it's cultural. Are you sure? It's not a gender thing? I, I would say gender might have something to do with it. But if I, you know, the Finns, they don't make a fuss. No, they don't make a fuss, no. But these type of things where 
whether it's gender or personality or family values or cultural, you know, country values, did you find along the way that there were things that you and your husband had to balance against each other? Um, Don't tell me that you agreed on everything, Sue. <laughs> no, no. Politics has sometimes been a bit of a, a thing. Um, not partly because I think it's the general cynicism and jadedness of uh, politics here because of the you know, the corruption and the, the community things when it, they're always trying to score points with the, off each other and nobody wins and nobody gains and the citizen is kind of out, left out in the cold, you know, and, and that makes me very cross. Um, but for example, over Brexit, I have been, and th this really underlines the luxury and the pain of being an expat because we, as you've probably noticed, everybody, um, all Brits have a strong view about this and and it's made me really quite, it's made me furious for nearly five years now. I've been so upset about it and I cannot let it go. And people, I know a few people who used to be quite close to me who um, voted, I quote, the wrong way. And I can't get past it. I can't get past it. And I can't think that Vincent would ever feel that strongly about anything political. Mm. But that is, again, um, yeah, it's frustrating for us all because um, what happens, well, we were not allowed to vote because we've been abroad for more, we, we long-term expats. We've been abroad for more than 15 years, therefore had no right to vote in that particular referendum. But whatever we say carries no weight. Nobody listens to us because everybody says, but you haven't lived here for 50 years. You can't possibly have an opinion. And that's tough. <laughs> mm. And that that's kind of balancing cultures in a way um, in that, you know, you've got to, you've got to take responsibility for your choices, but I shouldn't be silenced. I shouldn't be prevented from having an opinion just because of where I live, you know, I still, uh, so that, that's been quite difficult. Um, we, no, we, we have, um, I think there's also a big difference in how quickly you open up to somebody or how quickly you kind of move towards somebody and, and, and strike up a conversation or a, or a friendship, um, they are much more guarded here. Mm. It really, it's not just, as you say, uh, personality or, or gender. It, it's a, they're polite, but they're not as naturally, spontaneously communicative as many Anglo-Saxons are. There's no banter. Not much, no, not, not until you reach a certain point. Yeah. But I don't care, you know, I don't care. I just go for it. And mostly it works very well because they didn't, they didn't know you could do it until they see someone else doing it. You know? And they realise that it's being done to them, then they do it back to you, it's all right. But, but it's not natural part of their... Um, I, I mean, for example, it's like in German, we have the familiar tu and the, and the more formal vu. And it can take decades for people who are, you know, live close by and are going to see each other every day. It'll take decades before they actually move to the tu form. Decades, decades. It's very strange. And in a, they do see you as a guest. And so it's not that they, they decide the rules. It's just that they want to make you feel at ease by making sure you understand where the rules are in this situation. I'm sure that's how it works. <laughs> sure that's how it works. I hope so. Yeah. So after all these years, and how many years has it been? 51. 51 years officially abroad. Well, I don't even know if we should call it abroad anymore. We'll just say living in Belgium. Mm -hmm. What has surprised you most about balancing cultures? Um, I think, actually, coming down to it, 
uh, we've not talked about economic stability or security in this conversation. And I think that as long as you're not under threat, you know where your next meal is coming from and you've got a roof over your head and you've got a job, uh, I think making a fuss about someone else's culture, if you've chosen to live in it, is actually quite rude. Hmm. I think it's unreasonable. It's a choice you made. If you didn't, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. I think if you are, of course, I shouldn't speak because I was bilingual and partly bicultural before I came, but I sort of knew what I was getting into. And I don't think that you have the right to sort of ride roughshod over other people's habits and systems of behavior if you've chosen to live there. You know, I don't think you have that right. Um, I, I, I think you should try to blend in without, without obviously feeling compromised, I and mean, not, not, not to an extraordinary extent. But I think it's a bit of a luxury to actually make a fuss about things that, don't, that you don't like in your host country, quite frankly. Well, this came up in my episode. I interviewed a woman named Amy, who's American. She comes from Texas. Mm-hmm. But she was in the Peace Corps in Africa. Right. And then she lived in Vienna, and then now she lives in Munich, and she calls it, quote, cultural bitching. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Where, and she says she had to really, you know, give herself space from people who would do this because she's like, like you say, those of us who are in a, a position of privilege where we can move, it is a choice. Yeah. She's like, then why are you here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, we call that Belgian washing when people do that. Belgium bashing. Belgium bashing. You're bashing Belgium. Bashing. Yeah, you're you're bitching about Belgium, and you, you know, you, you have the luxury of not having to stay here, unlike other people. So just you know, <laughs> stop. I think I think that has been something really surprising for me, mm-hmm. is seeing how some people really challenge the balancing. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than participate in the balancing. Yes. Yes. I also think that to balance cultures. You've got to be very aware of what yours is before you start. Yes. This is this is one of the biggest reasons that I'm doing this project and that I'm doing this podcast is I feel the more you learn about other ways of life and other cultures and participate in this balancing process, the more you learn about yourself. Yeah. I mean, certainly you do learn about yourself, but I think a lot of people who move abroad, they think that... The way we do things where I come from is kind of normal, mm-hmm. kind of fundamental, and it's not necessarily the only right way to do it. But they don't realize the full scope of the perspective from which they're viewing the rest of the world. They don't realize that the integrated prejudices and uh, beliefs and whatever superstitions in a certain way, in a certain sense, they don't understand what their own baggage is. As you know, when you live abroad, you get a different view of what you thought your culture was back in your own country. Oh, yeah. You know, that's, that's for sure. But you, you, they don't realize how lopsided their own starting point is, in a sense. They think that's front and center. Ex- they'll accept changes or, or differences in various, as- various elements of their lives, but they don't realize how exactly where they stand with relation to all that because it's just normal i mean that is that is normal to them yeah that needs to be pointed out as well but i think probably the the real um 
the crunch things are like when you have to go to the doctor or the dentist or have your hair cut for the first time, something like that. You know, that's, uh, I think that that is probably the first hurdle that most people come up against. Uh, you know, the, the health system, because there you are slightly under threat if you're, obviously, if you're ill. But uh, that that is quite testing, I think. Um, that's probably the first real shock because the chances are, you know, you've met your employer, there's been some kind of orientation, you're busy settling in, et cetera, et cetera. But later, um, you know, first visit to the dentist, that can be a bit of a shock, especially, I imagine, if you don't speak the language. <laughs> but, you know, you just, you just have to do one hurdle at a time, I think. One hurdle at a time. I think so. And you've uh, you've gone over a few hurdles in your time. Yes. Yes. But I'm still here. And you're still here. So what do you think if we go back to the very beginning and I say, do you think you've lived an average life for people who were born around the same time and in the same place as you? What is your answer? The answer is no. It hasn't been average. It hasn't been like anybody else's. No, it hasn't. Um, all my elementary school friends are still in England. They didn't do languages necessarily. It's an automatic consequence of doing languages. You want to go and live and practice your languages. No, it has not been an average life. Also typical rather than average, perhaps. And it hasn't been similar to the others. No, I guess that's just the way it worked out. You know, I, I, The other thing is that my generation and people with my passport um, it's not that we're not introspective, but we are, we're, we're less, we have perhaps lower expectations. That's the thing that I'm probably trying to say. We don't, I mean, your constitution is the only one on earth that has the pursuit of happiness as something that's a legitimate goal. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a happy byproduct if it happens, but it's not anybody's goal. <laughs> you're not, you know, you're not expected to aim for that. So, it's very different, I think. I do think uh, Americans have a different starting point, a different viewpoint. And also, my generation—you know—we weren't, we had so few choices that we just made the best of everything. I think that's it, really. You know, you decide to make the best of things. You decide yeah. to make the best of things. Um, but you sh you've been interviewing people who are far younger than I am, with very different perspectives. I mean, this is a this is the end of quite a long life. I mean, three quarters of a century, quite a quite a lot and and so much has changed in the world as well I mean, the world has changed so fast never been 75 years with as much change as these these no that's what yeah with the 40s 50s 60s every every decade was so different absolutely yeah and so how was this then for you doing a retrospection and and considering what balancing cultures meant for your life how did that feel Fun. It's fun. Actually, I was sort of slightly embarrassed that I never felt the need to think about it before because I do think of myself as somebody who enjoys speculating. But um, no, it's been very, very interesting. I think I haven't consciously, as I said, I haven't consciously been doing it, but I have been because everybody has to. But I'm not sure. I think it's balancing life, really, rather than cultures. It's balancing life. And mm. you do it in a spirit of self-preservation, I think. You know, if I know that's going to drive me mad or make me unhappy, I, I think I, I'm somebody who, a friend said this to me not long ago, somebody who knew me well at university. She said, you always like things to be harmonious. And apparently it was quite obvious when I was at college already. I like things to be harmonious. I don't run away from conflict and I'm not afraid of putting my point of view forward and I quite like a good argument. Basically, I think that life is so short. If you're going to spend your time being miserable and 
picking fights with people and having unresolved issues to worry about and looking for trouble, basically. I, it makes me sound very lazy. That's not what I mean. But I, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, an instinctive sense of self-preservation and of the pursuit of serenity, perhaps. Perhaps that's what I mean. But I suppose it's just a function of personality as well as age and gender and, uh, and passport. But it seems to me you can make yourself very unhappy or you can make yourself happy, unless obviously you have severe mental health issues, which is completely different. But balance is something that sort of emerges as long as you know what is good for you and what is not good for you. And as long as you can make decisions and choose actions without feeling compromised. I, I never would want to feel that for the sake of a quiet life, I've said or done something that I thought was wrong. And I think it's all part of it. You know, just try and balance things for yourself and don't make other people's life a misery and don't go wasting your energy uh, and make sure that you are in the middle of the Venn diagram yourself and you know, juggle all the other circles and bubbles. I think that's the thing is, is juggling so that because you, nobody who is conflicted is at their best and you can't be much used to other people either. So, you know, look after yourself. I think that's what it is, really, basically. Look after your own internal balance. I think yeah. I think that's probably the best the best thing, uh, because otherwise you if, you know nobody's superhuman and we're not here forever. So do the best you can. You do the best you can. Yeah, do the best you can for everybody. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for everything, for all the introspection and the feedback and the fun stories. And for joining Balancing Cultures. Well, thank you, Megan. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for... Oh, good. Really, I've enjoyed it enormously. Thank you very much. Another big thank you to Sue for sharing her story. I'm honored that she took the time and trusted me with her first ever reflection and retrospection. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a balancing you don't need to wait 75 years or live 50 years abroad to reflect on what has made you not so average after all. Do you want to share your story? Contact and show notes are on balancingcultures.com. I'm Megan Kitchen, and this was Balancing Cultures. <laughs> <laughs>